This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs on How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It? by typing How Do We Fix It? podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is howdowefixit.me. You can also find How Do We Fix It? on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we like it so much that we're going to give you a, a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It? Jim, I wanted to do this show with you about dementia because my mother-in-law has Alzheimer's and she's had it for at least a decade. Uh, She lies in bed in a fog, her memories, as far as we can tell, long gone. And we have no idea what goes on through her head. And it's been a hard journey for for our family. Yeah. Dementia is a global crisis, and we're going to talk about it and the philosophical and moral questions that are raised by it. Facing Dementia, Nikki Gerard. We so value being young, being healthy, being vigorous, being successful, being purposeful, being autonomous. I would always have said that we are all made of those memories that we carry around and store in us. And all those things, the memories, the purpose, the sense of having a narrative self fall away as dementia advances. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? When you sit with someone who has dementia, a range of emotions rise up. They include sadness, pain, loss, mystery, ignorance of what a person you love is going through, and also this fear which occurs to us, what if I get dementia? I can certainly relate to that. The disease also raises profound moral questions about the society in which we live, the values we hold, the meaning of life. How much are we connected to one another? You know, when does a person cease to really be a person? And that's part of what we want to get at in this episode. A few numbers first, Jim. In 2017, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control estimated that there were 5.5 million people uh, living with dementia, nearly 50 million around the world, and the numbers are growing fast. 
uh, with the aging of the population. People over 85, the largest growing share of our population. We take a look at the mysterious disease and how we might face it more honestly and with deeper care. British author, journalist, and fiction writer Nikki Girard is the author of a new book, The Last Ocean, A Journey Through Memory and Forgetting. And Nikki joins us via Skype on an occasionally, as the Brits would say, dodgy line. Uh, there are a couple of phrases that, uh, that, that jump around a little bit, but stay with us. Uh, Nikki Girard via Skype from London. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? I'm really delighted to be here, and thank you very much for having me. Nikki, you lost your father to dementia. Is that why you wrote the book? Well, I certainly would never have written it if my father hadn't had dementia. But in fact, it was, it was almost like two sides to that. So he lived with dementia for 10 years or more than 10 years and lived well with it. Um, worked in the garden, walked by the river, teased his grandchildren, fed the birds. And so he was very gradually going into the darkness. Um, but most of the time he was quite contented. And if that had remained the case, if he had gradually declined over the years, it would have been a sad story, but not a tragic one or a horror story. And I probably wouldn't have written a book about dementia if that had remained the case. Things changed dramatically for your father when he... I believe, had ulcers and had to go into the hospital. What happened? So he went into a hospital um, and was there for five weeks, which is far too long for someone who's got leg ulcers. Um, and what none of us realized until far too late is how hazardous hospitals are for people who are frail and vulnerable and confused and, and how dangerous it is to treat people who have dementia are simply as patients, not as people. What happened is he went in um, articulate, mobile, contented, and because we weren't allowed in to see him except in enforced visiting hours and then not allowed in at all because of an outbreak of norovirus, he went off a cliff. The things that kept him connected to the world were, were cut. Um, so we weren't there to hold his hand or help him to walk or help him to eat and keep him hydrated. And without those things that kept him connected to the world, he lost himself, basically. So he went in doing well and he came out absolutely like a ghost in his own life. He couldn't walk or talk. He couldn't lift up his head. He was a body in a bed for the rest of his life. That must have been so difficult for you. Well, it was hideous. And actually, I was endlessly struck by a how precarious someone with dementia is, but also how mysterious the human mind is. Um, and so in a sense, the idea of a book grew out of those terrible last nine months when I was feeling that he was both kind of present and yet absent, that I'd lost him, and yet he was still powerfully there. And actually, it's astonishing to me now how we weren't more disobedient to those rules. For the rest of my life, I will feel guilty that I left him in hall. He must have felt abandoned by everybody. So I set up a campaign shortly after my father's death, which insists on the right of carers to stay with people with dementia 
when they go into hospitals and to be made welcome at all times because it makes no sense whatsoever that somebody should be left at their hour of greatest need. And the campaign has been phenomenally successful and pretty much every hospital in the UK now welcomes carers in a way that they didn't when my father was in hospital. But of course, too late, too late for him. You know, this may seem obvious, but it's really not. How do we define dementia? Yeah, it's really not obvious because the first thing that is that we shouldn't call it dementia. We should call them dementias. There are hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of dementias. And all it really means is a serious cognitive impairment in the brain. Your book begins with a lovely scene that happened just, a few, I think, a few months before that sudden downturn when your father has pretty advanced dementia, but you are able to bring him on a vacation to Sweden. And one evening in the gloaming, he's able to go out in the lake and swim around a little bit. And, and you describe him out there in the water swimming. I'm just going to read a little, um, a little passage because it just really struck me. You're watching him from the shore and trying to figure out what is going on in his mind as he immerses himself in the nature that he, he loved so much. And you say, the edges of the self are soft. The boundaries of the self are thin and porous. In that moment, I could believe that my father and the world were one. It was pouring into him, and he was emptying out into it. The reason that I opened the book with that image, which is an image that I think I'll carry with me, and which will haunt me for the rest of my life, was because it was this profoundly moving reminder of how mysterious it is to be human, how my father was there and he was still, he was the man I had known all my life and loved and was very close to. And yet he felt very, very far removed from me. He felt like he was in his own world, which is a world of nature and and kind of boundlessness, really. So, yes, and he was being lost into nature and nature was kind of flooding into him and so it was both it was both quite scary but also yet full of solace and the thing that I say about memory about who are we when we lose our memory who was my father my father he was he was someone who was extremely um dignified and practical and able and full of modesty and and also quite full of eccentricity, I guess. Um, but as he was dying, in those last, particularly in those last nine months of dying, all those things that he built up, that kind of formation of the self, which starts when people are toddlers, of learning to defend yourself against the world, of building up this kind of armour. So, you know, when we were born into the world and we learn to be continent, we learn to keep secrets, we learn to not speak everything we feel, we learn to contain ourselves. And one of the things that happens in dementia, which can, be, which can be very distressing, especially in the early stages for those people who have the illness, is that those defences get picked apart and dismantled. So bit by bit, people lose their ability to kind of keep hold of those boundaries around themselves. So they're no longer continent, perhaps. The body becomes this kind of treacherous leaking vessel they say things they don't want to say they don't say the things they do want to say they don't they, they become completely unprotected they become this kind of naked raw self in this vast world 
I would always have said that we are all made of those memories that we carry around and store in us. And all those things, the memories, the purpose, the sense of having a narrative self fall away as dementia advances. They fall away so there is no narrative. There's no continuous narrative self. There are only an infinite number of moments. There is no sense of purpose left. And I've met so many other people now living with dementia and in the last stages of dementia, and they have lost everything. They have lost all capacity, all speech, all recognition, all recollection, and yet something remains. And what I say in the book is that if I was religious, I'd call it a soul. I'm not religious, so I don't have the right word for it. Maybe essence. There's something that remains. And that is that says something about how extraordinary it is to be human, that we can remain after we've gone. And it's like an, there's some kind of, there's something which is extremely kind of wonderful about that. So we, we talk about the tragedy of dementia. We talk about the, the confusion and the loss of memory, the loss perhaps of self. Um, we talk about how difficult it is to be with people who have dementia. But I wonder, what did your father give to you? What has the, the people who you've met who have dementia, what have they given to you? Uh, what have you learned from them through this? So that's such a big question because I think I've learned really, <laughs> I hope I've learned really a lot of things and they're all different things. And the first thing to say before even answering that question is we do talk about the tragedy of dementia and we talk about the loss and we talk about the difficulty of being with them and perhaps we don't talk enough about the gift of dementia and about how to be with people in the moment and how to learn from that and how when the kind of ego gets dismantled something very precious remains that we ought to value more than we do um, and I've come across people who even when they have quite advanced dementia are so full of adventure and spirit and a sense of kind of joy and courage that it's quite extraordinary. I mean, so if I think of a few of the things I've learned, one thing is that we should not think of people with dementia as less valuable and less human than people who are lucky enough not to have the disease or not to have it yet. We should think of them as subjects in their own life and not as objects. I mean, too often I've spent a lot of time kind of in hospitals and in residential homes, being with people with dementia, being with people who care for them, being with doctors and nurses. And too often, even wonderful doctors and nurses talk across them, don't talk to them, talk about them, treating them as people who no longer have any rights over their own life. Yeah, that, that's such an important point. Um, we mentioned at the top of this show that the reason why we did it is because um, my mother-in-law has had dementia for the last 10 years, and she's immobile. And one of the things that she's given us is laughter. She, she laughs a lot when we're, when we're with her. And she, <laughs> yeah. she squeezes yeah. our hand, and it's so, you know, it, it's just so humbling. Just... And that is wonderful. And there are quite a few people I've talked to who say that the person that they care for have become some sometimes people become happier sometimes the process of losing your defenses against the world 
is also a process of becoming more open to the world and more emotional and, you know, even more full of joy. Of course, there are quite a lot of forms of dementia which are not happy forms at all. And it's not just about memory loss. It's about becoming violent or extremely distressed. It can be quite hellish. It sounds like with your mother-in-law, as with my father, they've retained the personality and their and and remain contented. Yes. I'm interested in this question of what remains when a lot of the 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 what we think of as a self is lost. And you write in the book about the role of art. So tell us a little bit about the artist William Uttermolen. So William Uttermolen was a an American German realist artist um, who I never met. He died before um before I started thinking about dementia, but I did meet and spent a lot of time with his widow, Patricia. So William Utamolan had early onset dementia. Um, and when he first got the diagnosis, he pretty much turned his face to the wall. He became terrified and depressed and kind of gave up really, was just lay in bed in a panic. And then during a spell in hospital, a very wonderful nurse persuaded him to start painting again. And what he did is he started painting self-portraits of himself as he lost himself. So over the next, I think, nearly 10 years, several years, he painted himself disappearing. And they start off as realist portraits um, and very skillful. And then bit by bit, they become skewed. You know, his arms start coming out of his neck and he loses that kind of sense of who he is. But he follows his own disintegration until by the very end, he's like a scribbled death head, recognisable still, and they're profoundly scary. You know, he stopped being able to speak, um, but he could still make a mark on the page. And right up to, I think it was like a few months before, he kept making that mark on the page, kind of saying, here I am. I think there's also a, a role for art in a form of communication that is different from verbal communication. I, and I think most of us have seen this when you know, if, the impact of music on people with dementia. Uh, I remember when my mother was in the, yeah. in the last stage, literally actually the last week of her life, um, we started, there wasn't a lot to say. So my sisters and I would sit around her bed and we would sing songs. And at one point, she loved the old funny swing songs from the 1940s and 30s and stuff. And at one point, we launched into the Chattanooga Choo Choo and she started <laughs> off and she remembered all the words, you know, and we were just. I know. I know. It is. It is like a miracle. I, you know, I've gone to lots of kind of dance classes and there was one dance class I went to, which I had such a good time. I went there and I was partnered with this tiny woman from Jamaica who was had quite advanced dementia. She was very withdrawn, um, really couldn't speak. Wow, because she danced. We took to the floor and the music struck up and she clearly danced all her life and she was whizzing around. And And the wonderful thing about that, apart from seeing her just so full, that, that it was like the music was flowing through her and she was alive in that moment. And also, she was my teacher. So I wasn't looking after her. She was looking after me. So it was fantastic democratic space in which we were both dancing. With my father, it was poetry. He loved poetry and he knew poems by heart. And he used to say them to us when we were children. And in fact, the last time my four children 
saw him the last time they visited him we were all there and me and Sean and my four children we stood around his bed and we started reciting John Macefield's Sea Fever which is a poem that goes I must go down to the seas again the lonely sea in the sky and all I ask is a tall ship and the stars to steer her by and he joined in and he couldn't say anything he couldn't say a word by that time but he could recite this poem we would just leaning towards him and we were all crying and laughing and saying this poem all together and it was this sense that he looked gone he looked like he was no longer there he seemed like he was no longer there and yet these words that were sort of worn a groove in him over all the years of his long life they were still there that kind of groove of memory was still there so so the the soul was not gone exactly Exactly. We're talking about dementia with the journalist and author Nikki Gerard. Uh, this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Nikki, is society in denial about dementia? Is it sending the wrong messages? <laughs> well, I absolutely think so. I think that one of the things that society, I mean, especially kind of developed rich societies like the United States or like the UK, um, we so value being young, being healthy, being vigorous, being successful, being purposeful, being autonomous. And in dementia, all these things gradually unravel, gradually fall away. What, what about those people who are old, who are frail, who have no autonomy, who have no purpose, who are at our mercy and at the mercy of strangers. What about them? Do they not have value? Um, and I think it's a really profound question we need to ask ourselves. If we're not old, we're getting there. Part of the reason that we're in denial about it is because we're so scared about it. it you know, it's the disease, it's the illness that we're most scared of as a society now. And because we're so scared of it, and because we're so scared it might be coming our way, and because it fills us not just with fear, but a kind of squeamishness, I think, and even a kind of disgust, it is much easier to turn away. It is much easier to treat people with dementia as if they weren't fully human anymore. The same way that we walk past homeless people and don't meet their eyes, or walk past prostitutes and don't look at them, and don't acknowledge that we're all in this together. That's what we do in spades with people with dementia. You know, we're a show about solutions and not every episode wraps up with a nice list of policy <laughs> prescriptions. Uh, with your experience that you've had now, do you have advice for someone who is, is living with or loves someone who is in the early stages of this progression? What, what you know, is there anything you wish you'd done differently with your father. Yes, yes. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I wish I'd known at the beginning of his journey what I knew by the end, and I would have done it better. And so one of the first very quite small but very powerful things I'd say is there comes a point when someone has dementia when you can't bring them back into the world that they're leaving. You have to accompany them in their world. So thing that we 
often do of correcting people with dementia, of reminding them that they're getting things wrong, of saying, no, it's not Monday, it's Saturday. No, it's not nine in the morning, it's midnight, which must be so scary and humiliating. So that's a small thing, but it's very useful to know that. So that's the first thing. The next thing I would say is art, everyday creativity, doing things with them. People who have dementia, are, they're the same person. It's not like you cross a line with a diagnosis into a different world. So they still need respect. They need patience. They need time. They need love. They need honouring. And they need to be kept in the flow of life, not pushed out of it. I think that one of the things that I've learned is to recognise when people have dementia and just be a bit more vigilant. I was the other day, I was in a supermarket and there was an old woman standing by citrus fruit and she was clearly confused. And 10 years ago, I would have raced past her in my busy life. I wouldn't have had time. You know, I would have been there not seeing. I just went up and we chatted and she, she talked about how she used to eat lots of oranges when they were in Spain, her and her husband, and how he was dead now, and how she didn't know whether she was going to buy oranges or lemons, and she was clearly quite befuddled. When you saw her, what did you say to her first? How did you engage with her? I, I just went up and I said, oh, it's hard. It's hard to choose, isn't it? I find it hard to choose. Do you know what you're going to be buying? And then we just had this really nice conversation, and, and she ended up by deciding to buy both because she couldn't make up <laughs> her mind who have dementia. We all need to be a bit kinder towards each other, recognise people's vulnerabilities, recognise our own vulnerabilities, hold out our hands to each other. Speaking of our own vulnerabilities, um, are there things that people who fear that they might be starting to lose their memory or, or, or are in early stages of dementia that they should do that perhaps... Uh, many people aren't aware of? It is clear that those people who who find the illness least psychologically painful are those people who accept it, who say it out loud, who get an early diagnosis, who don't hide away with it, who refuse to feel ashamed of it. Because after all, why feel ashamed? It's an illness. <laughs> it's an illness like any other illness. It's an illness of the brain. You talk about several different things that societies are doing. For instance, dementia villages in the Netherlands and yeah. Denmark, and then dementia training in hospitals. Uh, could we just talk about a few practical things that perhaps can, can be done? I mean, so the first practical thing I'd say, which is not going to happen here at any time soon, is just money, more money put into the whole thing. Just it is so badly resourced, both research into it, care for it. I mean, there's no cure, so care should be so much better. Um, help for the carers, because one of the things that we haven't talked about is the life of the carer. And the life of the carer is often overlooked. I mean, it's an illness which affects people around the person who has it. And that we need to be more aware of that. But there are these wonderful endeavours going around on all over the world. I mean, in the US, in the UK, all over the world. Dementia villages, they work really well. Well, so they're exactly what they say, which is that everyone who lives there is someone who has dementia or someone who's caring for that person with dementia. The world becomes a both kind of 
sealed off from the outside world, but it becomes the whole world. So nobody is contradicting them. Everything is geared towards them. Everything is safe for them. They feel at home there. Often the villages are kind of made so that they reflect the time that the people would who were there, the older people who were there, felt comfortable with. It's not the modern world. It's a world that they were at home in. Um, I mean, I don't know that I'd love to be in that kind of world, but it certainly does work for some people. Um, and then there are, other, there are other kind of smaller things that are going on. For instance, there are quite a few residential homes that are based on the sites of nurseries. So there are little kids and old people, and they spend time together. And that seems great. There are students whose whose accommodation is in an old person's home, a person with dementia's home, so they can be their companion and their rent is paid. And that works really well. I heard of this fantastic project recently where a residential home where people with not very advanced dementia were cooking food for homeless people. And that just struck me as like, that was like genius because A, they're doing something and they're doing it for a purpose so it's not just that they are being taken care of they are taking care of other people and I think that sense of losing value and losing purpose when you have the diagnosis of dementia is profoundly distressing people with diagnosis are not separated from the life they once led they're the same person you don't cross over some invisible line once you get given a diagnosis you're the same person you should be allowed to live in the same life and be in that life for as long as possible nikki gerard author of the wonderful new book uh, the last ocean a journey through memory and forgetting thanks so much for joining us on how do we fix it it has been my pleasure and thank you very much for asking me nikki gerard via skype from london our conversation with Jim and me coming up. I think everyone listening to this podcast probably has had some experience with this, with someone in their, in their life or in their family. And certainly that's true for me, having lost both my parents in recent years, and both of whom you know, went through significant cognitive decline in their, in, their, in their later years. The first thing she noted was that problem of having someone with cognitive issues have a radical change of scene, like going you know, into the hospital, but you often see a dramatic cognitive decline when they're moved out of the world they're familiar with. And that's something to be aware of and cautious about, I think, and they don't have the resilience. But the other thing she talked about, which really resonated with me is being willing to live in their world, not try to fix them, remind them. And I found this with my parents, at a certain point, so much of our relationship was talking about politics and science and ideas and what was happening right now. And I realized I don't need to be talking to my dad about the economy today. You know, yeah. uh, I need to be talking to my dad about growing up, stuff we did together. Remember when we went scuba diving, stuff that really lives deeper inside. He doesn't have to be engaged with current events anymore. That's past. But there, he's still very much there. And my mom... You know, I mentioned the old songs and stuff. Just, you know, talk about the happy, you know, things you share that reach mm -hmm. back. And you can well, be together in that. The songs are, are a wonderful thing. You know, Singing we, songs yeah. to someone by their bedside. I just love that image. That's, yeah, and we weren't big song singers right. when I was, I was growing up that much. And it, but when my mother's last weeks, we did a lot of that. My wife's mom lives in a house 
in California, a small residential setting. She originally was in a nursing home, an institutional setting, and thank goodness uh, Judy's family moved her to this house where there are four or five other uh, very elderly people and then carers surrounding them. And I think that that's an example of where uh, we could help those with dementia by moving them into more loving, more caring settings uh, and being in sharing communities. I was very struck by what Nikki said when she said that people can live useful lives when they have dementia for years and years, not in the final stages of their disease, but certainly, you know, just helping them to live in community. I'm going to challenge that a tiny bit. You said useful lives. What I took away that well, lives lives that help other people as opposed to just being cared for by others. I, I see that's what, you what mean. I mean a, a life where they're contributing um, in 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 certain ways. That, that moment she talked about dancing with the older Jamaican woman who was right. teaching her that yeah, was that was beautiful. Great. But but one thing I really took away from this conversation is in our society we put so much emphasis on on success, on, on being active and, and I'm saying, you know, useful and in a more pragmatic sense. And that I think part of her journey is recognizing that a human has value even if they can no longer contribute. One final thought, and I think that, that anyone who loves someone who has dementia walks away with what Nikki said, we should all be kinder one another yeah that's how do we fix it i'm richard davies heavy show i'm jim show. our producer is miranda schaefer and we're a production of davies content we make digital audio podcasts for companies and nonprofits. check out what we do at daviescontent.com and if you have a comment or a question about this program please go to our website there's a little content box you can fill out it's how do we fix it dot me And don't forget that we're on Patreon. So please do what you can to help us continue spreading the word. This is ACAST Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. I'm Kimmy Culp. I'm a producer from shows like Good Morning America and The Oprah Winfrey Show. Join me as I sit down with some of the most inspiring people you've never met. People who have survived the unthinkable. This shark attack, like, I definitely should have died. And then I've, I was blown up on the 29th of January. I think a lot of people are like, thank God that's not me. For every episode, we donate $2,000 to charities doing incredible work in the world. All the wiser. Find us wherever you get your podcast. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.